You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. Have you ever been disappointed, deeply unsettled when circumstances you had felt sure about went horribly wrong? Heartbroken when someone you thought you could trust betrayed you. Disappointments come in all sizes, from the mundane to the devastating. You thoroughly research your online shopping purchase, but when the package arrives, it isn't at all what it looked like in the pictures. You're disappointed. There was the disappointment I experienced as a researcher when a manuscript I had labored over for months was rejected by a journal without even being sent out for peer review. But of course, the big disappointments in our lives come from people. People we have loved and trusted, only to be disappointed when they don't live up to our expectations. Disappointment includes a sense of loss, the loss of the happy outcome we had been hoping for. It may involve some self-criticism. Why were we so foolish to invest hope in what proved to be such a risky situation? When we're disappointed in a person, it often leads to a significant change in our relationship with them. Indeed, that's the root meaning of the word. It comes from an old French word that means to undo the appointment of, or to remove from office. Think of, when we appointed you to be the, to the office of steward, we thought you were trustworthy. Now that your actions prove you are not, we are disappointing you. And so for us. We award pedestals of honor, trust, and confidence to the special people in our lives. But when their actions undermine or contradict the view that we had of them, we're disappointed, and we take them down off the pedestal. The relationship is changed. It becomes a pivot point that can lead to healing and growth, but more often it precipitates a breaking of the relationship. Actually, we know what it's like to be on both sides of that kind of transaction. We have been disappointed by others whom we had trusted, but we have also disappointed people who loved us and placed confidence in us. The feelings are pretty terrible on both sides, and so we try to avoid them, to avoid disappointments. Many kids whose parents had high expectations for them are haunted even in adulthood by a crippling fear that if they take a particular path, they will end up disappointing the parents who loved them and made sacrifices for them. And, just as we might do with a loving earthly parent, we can do the same with God. Live lives that are hobbled by a fear of disappointing God. Today we're going to take a look at a psalm where the psalmist fears God will be disappointed in him. It's Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me out and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You are about my path and around my bed. You're acquainted with all my ways. Because there's not a word in my mouth before you, O Lord, know the whole of it. You have hedged me in behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's set high. I can't grasp it. Where shall I go, then, from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I climb up into heaven, you are there. If I go down to hell, you are there, too. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there also your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. If I say, let the darkness cover me and the light about me become night, yet even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is as clear as the day, the darkness and light are the same to you. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are marvelous, and my soul knows that really well. My frame wasn't, hidden, wasn't hid from you when I was made secretly and fashioned beneath in the earth. Your eyes saw the substance of me even when it was incomplete. You saw the days that were planned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your counsels to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I wake up, I am present with you. Won't you slay the wicked, O God? Depart from me, you murderous ones. They speak unrighteously against you, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate the ones who hate you, O Lord? Am I not grieved with those who rise up against you? I hate them completely, even as though they were my enemies. Try me, O God, and seek out the grounds of my heart. Test me out and know my anxious thoughts. Examine well to see if there are any wicked ways in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist starts by acknowledging that God sees him completely, sees him externally in his actions and words, and sees him internally in his thoughts and plans. It's as though he's the subject of some kind of intrusive psychology experiment where his every movement is being monitored, or perhaps living under the all-seeing eye of Orwell's big brother. The psalmist says to God, You are about my path and around my bed. And he seems to be unsettled, perplexed by the thought. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's set high. I can't grasp it. Writing today, he might say, I just can't get my head around it. And because he can't make sense of it, his instinct is to run and hide, to see if he can get to a place where he is out from under the scrutiny of God. Now, that's not a new response to the fear of being vulnerable before God. It has been there since the very beginning. In the story of the Garden of Eden, we read that after Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit, they become aware of their nakedness and hide, hiding behind fig leaves and behind trees and bushes, anything to avoid the penetrating gaze of God. But we'll come back to their story a bit later. When the psalmist decides he needs to run and hide, the poetry is lovely. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. But while the language is lyrical, his thoughts are clearly unsettled. At some level, the psalmist's instinct is to hide makes no sense. If God knows his every action and knows them in advance, then if there is something in his past or future that would disappoint God, God already knows. Of course, it's not like we haven't all at one time or another used denial so that we could do something that at another level we knew to be irrational or, un or unreasonable. It almost feels as though the psalmist is trying to play that toddler's game of peekaboo. If I hide under this blanket where God can't 
where I can't see God, then surely God can't see me. Perhaps he knows he can't avoid God seeing his failures, but at least if he doesn't come face to face with God, he won't need to feel the disappointment. In the end, he finds that he can run, but he cannot hide. Distance won't do it. Darkness won't do it. Even death cannot separate him from the loving presence of his God. It's at this point that the psalm takes a more positive turn. It's actually like many psalms where halfway through the writer seems to get a new insight or perspective. Think, for example, of Psalm 73, where the psalmist is lamenting the fact that the arrogant and the affluent seem to have the world wrapped around their finger and they are never held accountable for their unjust actions. But at the midpoint of the psalm, he says, When I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw the whole picture, the slippery road you've put them on with a final crash in a ditch of delusions. That kind of reversal of perspective shouldn't be surprising. If we think of the Psalms as prayers, then that's exactly what should happen. After all, the purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God ought to do, but for us to gain divine perspective on our situation, to change our minds, not to change God's mind. And so the psalmist, in his new perspective, acknowledges that God has created him just as he is, that the Lord wove together every aspect of his being, all of his potential and his limitations, his strengths and his weaknesses, and God is not surprised by any of it. Indeed, he acknowledges God's perspective that he is remarkably, amazingly, and wonderfully made. Maybe God isn't disappointed with him at all. After that lovely pian to the marvel of the creation of humankind and God's fashioning of the psalmist himself, he seems to go on a bit of a sidetrack. It isn't uncommon for David, who is thought to be the author of this psalm, to rail against his enemies and ask for God to wipe them out. But in this psalm, he's targeting not his own, but God's enemies. Do I not hate the ones you hate, O Lord? I hate them completely, even as though they were my enemies. What's going on here? I think that the psalmist is not only getting perspective on the fact that God loves him with an unconditional and timeless love, but also he's seeing that his difficulty in hanging on to that profound truth is in part due to the work of God's enemies. Who are God's enemies? Not people. Not my annoying co-worker or my irritating relative. Not even Putin or Trump or Trudeau, depending on your political stripe. No, God's enemies are what the Bible describes as the principalities and powers, the evil forces in the spiritual realm. The psalmist describes them as speaking against the Lord wickedly and taking God's name in vain. They are liars, and specifically they lie about God's nature and purposes. And that brings us back to Eden. The first echo of the story of Adam and Eve in the garden that we heard in this psalm was in David's instinct to run and hide rather than face God's disappointment in him. But now we're reminded that that first couple didn't get their bad decision to distrust God on their own. God's enemy was there, whispering lies to them. In the Eden story... The evil forces are personified as a serpent. 
The serpent takes two lines of attack. He suggests that God's expectations of them are unreasonably harsh. Didn't God say that you can't eat any of the fruit in the garden? And then he suggests that God doesn't have their best interests at heart. If you eat it, you'll become wonderfully wise, but God doesn't want that. The psalmist, whose instinct it is to flee to the uttermost parts of the sea, has believed a lie that God is disappointed in him, that he hasn't measured up and there will be consequences, that whatever joy and comfort he had found in God's presence in his early days of faith has come to an end. I don't know who needs to hear this, but God is not disappointed in you. In God's eyes, you are remarkably and wonderfully made, bearing the very stamp of the divine nature. Yes, you've messed up, wandered astray, or even deliberately barged into bad decisions, but none of that is news to God. One of the features of the divine nature that gets emphasized throughout this psalm is that God lives outside of time, doesn't have to wait to see if we will meet expectations or mess up. God knows the end from the beginning. Our notions of disappointment are very time-bounded. I used to think you were dependable, but now I find you aren't and I'm disappointed. But for the God who inhabits eternity, that kind of construct doesn't even make sense. One way to think about it is to imagine God seeing time in the way that we see space. When we stand before a beautiful landscape, we can look across the panorama and drink all of it in. In a similar way, God can see all of time at once. God's love is truly unconditional because past actions that we regret and future mistakes that we fear we may make are fully known already. And he probably sees them more accurately than we let ourselves see them. The psalm ends in one sense where it began. The first verse says, God, you have searched me and known me. And that scrutiny is uncomfortable for the psalmist. His instinct is to run and hide. But in the last verses, knowing that the God who knows the whole story is relentlessly pursuing him in love, the psalmist invites God to examine him. He prays, try me, O God, and seek out the ground of my heart. Test me out and know my anxious thoughts. Examine well to see if there are any wicked ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist no longer fears the probing eye of a righteous judge. He's no longer hobbled by a fear that God will be disappointed in him. He welcomes the loving gaze of his Lord, God's abiding, inescapable presence, the God who is undisappointable.